Hello, everyone, and welcome to a Chabura Public Shur. Today, we have for the first time Rabbi Stephen Dansky exploring the life and work of Abar Banel. Rabbi Dansky is the senior rabbi of Cranbrook Synagogue in Northeast London. He studied at the Ateret Israel Yeshiva in Jerusalem and gained both a BA in psychology and MA in organizational psychology. Rabbi Dansky received rabbinic ordination after studying at the Kolel of the Judith Lady Montefiore College. Rabidansky focuses on the interplay between traditional rabbinic ideas and psychological theories and concepts. His approach is inspired by the teachings of Chief Rabbi Sachs on Torah v'Chochmah, the great partnership of religious and scientific thinking. Currently, Rabidansky is working on exploring the work of the Abarbanel, providing a blog which shows both the thinking of the Abarbanel and illustrating the ways in which his thinking relates to Torah text. It is a privilege and pleasure to have you with us. Thank you. And Thank you so much, everyone, for being here. Thank you so much for everyone who's going to be listening. And Chacham, the floor is yours. Okay. Chanukah uh, Sameach to everyone. It is so lovely to be here this evening with you all and to be presenting on the Chabura. Um, what I'm going to be talking about is about the Barbanel, a little bit about who he was and his history, then a little bit about his methodology of understanding how he understands Torah. And then we're going to look at a few examples, uh, time permitting, because there are, are, are a few of us, I really would love to get as much participation as possible. So I'm looking forward to hearing your perspectives and your thoughts. You are more than welcome to write any comments on the sides um, uh, in, in chat. And if I can see that, that would be great. Ohad. And uh, if I can, um, and then I will try and respond to those questions and I will certainly give time for reflection and to hear your thoughts um, and how you think about what is being presented today. So first and foremost, Don Yasaka Barbanel was born in 1450, 1437 and, and died in 1508. So Don Yasaka Barbanel, what is the most amazing thing about this man and what is incredible about him was who he was as a personality. So we understand that his father was a man called um, David Barbanel, and this man was the finance minister for the Portuguese king, Alfonso. And this was an, a position which his son, Don Yitzchak, inherited. So obviously the Barbanel family, or the Bavranel, if you, if you, if, if you prefer that, um, the Bavranel family were an incredibly wealthy family and they financed many uh, aspects of the king of Portugal. And later on, when there was a certain fight going on between uh, between the king of Portugal and the Abravanel family, Don Yitzchak left Portugal and he moved into Spain. He was clearly a very, very talented man, a statesman and an individual who had good grasp of financial and fiduciary things because he was immediately hired by... Uh, the king and queen of Spain at that time, King Ferdinand and Queen Isabella. Now, what, and this is fascinating, what's fascinating is, is that Don Yusuke Barbanel went and gave a huge amount of money and he financed the ability for Spain to conquer all of the known Spain, including the Iberian Peninsula, allowing all of Spain to be under Christian rule. 
And it was at that moment when all of Spain was under inverted commas Christian rule, that was the beginning of the decision to uh, expel the Jewish people from Spain because they wanted to be a completely Christian country. Now, Don Yitzhak of Arbanel fought against this and he spoke to the king and he spoke to the nobles around the king to try to reverse the decision that the king had made around uh, the, uh, the uh, expulsion of the Jews from Spain. But alas, uh, this did not work out. Apparently, according to the Barbanel, he writes about this in the in introduction to his book on Malachim Aleph in Kings 1. He writes that the queen was a Satan law. You know, she was a she was a lady who egged Ferdinand on not to listen to the pleas of the Barbanel or to many of the nobles who wanted to keep the Jewish people in Spain, um, presumably because the because they provided a huge amount of financial backing to the Spanish. And this wasn't really in their interests to expel the Jews from Spain. But nonetheless, his Appeals fell on deaf ears, and the Barbanel himself was sent into exile in Italy from 1492 with the rest of Spanish Jewry. So even though he was in such a powerful position as being the finance minister of the Spanish government, this did not save him. And he went off to Italy, and there he became involved with other with other Italian states and trying to provide financial uh, support and um, political assistance to the people there. In fact, he created a treaty between part of Italy and um, Portugal at a later stage. What's fascinating about the Barbanel is that even through all of that, this didn't mean that he wasn't also a huge Talmud Chacham. He was a huge learned man. And it is clear from his commentary that he knew a huge amount, both in terms of the uh, the, the Talmud and in terms of the Midrash, and he quotes this vociferously right throughout his commentary. Although this is not the absolute thrust of his commentary, it is something that he definitely brings in and he discusses. Um, what we need to understand about the Barbanel, if we are going to look at who he was and his commentary itself, we first need to understand that there are four levels of understanding the Torah. I'm sure you are not strangers to this concept, but there are four levels of understanding Torah. The first being Pshat, which is the simple level of the Torah, what is stated. The second is the Drash, how the rabbis have interpreted the words of the Torah and given it meaning or given it a history which is not specifically written inside the Torah. The third level is remez, is a hint. And when the Torah, when we talk about remez, we're talking about the fact that the Torah might describe something going on, but really the Torah, the, the, the way that the remez would learn that thing is, is saying that whatever is written in that Torah is actually referring to something else or is a personification of something else. So let me give you an example of that, Remes. For example, the Torah talks about a, the Medrash, I beg your pardon, talks about a comparison between Zion and Yosef. Now, that comparison between Zion and Yosef 
tells us that the story of Yosef is really a story of Zion. It's a story of Jewry. And just like the Jewish people were hated, so too Yosef was hated by his brothers. Just as Joseph received a katonet pasim, he received something to show his grandeur, so too the people received, the Bnei Yisrael received the Torah at Har Sinai. Just like that created a situation of, of Sinai, of, of hatred of the brothers, the brothers hated Yosef because of, 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 of his katonet pasim, because of his coat, so too um, the the, the the Jewish people become hated on a certain level because of the the Torah which is given to them. So there, from that perspective, the story of Yosef therefore becomes a personification for a, another story which is far greater and far more grand in its scope than the story of Yosef itself. That would be Remez. The final level is one of Sod, which is the secrets of the Torah, as described in the Zohar, in the books of the Arizal, and those are beyond the scope of, of this man's ability to understand, and probably many people's ability to understand. But these are the four levels in which Torah is understood. Now, you, anybody who has gone through a, or has gone to a shul, if you've gone to a shul and you've listened to the rabbi's sermon, there's one thing that you should know about that sermon. And that is that that sermon is primarily based on drash rather than based on pshat. What do I mean? I mean that often what, what the rabbi will quote or what is being quoted more often than not is a homiletic lesson which is learnt out from the verses themselves rather than what the verses themselves necessarily say. So. The result of this is that there's often, especially from younger children, a confusion between what is written in the Torah and what is written by the Midrash and by Rashi, who is one of the great proponents of Drash. And those two become so interconnected and interlinked that it's actually quite difficult for many children to be able to disengage between one and the other. So the result of that is that there are some commentaries who give a pshat-based response to the Torah. Amongst them, the Ibn Ezra, who goes and looks at the syntax of the Torah, at the language which is being used. He finds other places in which that same language is used, and he uses it almost as a simple translation of the Torah, as does the Rashbam, Reb Shmuel ben Mordechai, who was the son-in-law of Rashi, who also goes and provides a uh, sorry, a big pardon, a pshat, a simple textual-based commentary on the Torah. Now, what the Abarbanel does is that the Abarbanel, while the Abarbanel agrees and definitely uses the drash, he will quote what the Midrash says, and he will quote what other commentaries, for example, the Ramban and Nachmanides, or what Rashi will say, what the Barbanel then will do, will then explain the Pesukim, the verses, based purely on Pshat. And he comes out with lessons which aren't necessarily the same lessons that you and I grew up with. 
And I'm going to try and give you an example of this in, in, in a bit. So that is what the, the, the Barbanel is going to do. And what he's going to do, he's, he's going to be able to do this by looking at the text itself, the syntax, as well as the flow of the verses. How did the flow, the, how did the verses come together and what are they telling us? What is the bigger picture which is being provided by looking at all the verses together rather than seeing things more on a drush-based level? Now, one of the things that is fascinating is who, uh, we can find out a huge amount about who the Barbanel was based on some of his commentaries. So there are a few things. Um, I, I'd like to share this if I possibly can. Uh, would I be able to ch- to share this, Ohad? Yes. Okay. All right. You should have the option. Oh, yeah, I, I, I should have the ability to do this. Right, I suddenly realized that it's me. It's not It's not you, it's me. Right, okay, there we go. So one of the things that the Abarbanel does is he has a focus on Pshat, as I mentioned. His interpretation is based on internal logic of the verse rather than going externally to the Midrash in order to find what that is. What, what, what that interpretation means. So, and also what he does is he does use, like the Barbanel, he uses words in different places, which are the same, to define a meaning. So I'm going to give you an example of that, which I which I thought was really, really fascinating. In the book of Yonah, when Yonah, the, uh, Yonah flees from uh, from the commandment of God, and instead of going to Nineveh to tell him to do to, Teshuvah, to, to repent, he travels off in another direction. We know the story, he falls asleep, and then he wakes up, and they say to him, what's going on? Because there's a storm outside, and they want to know who's responsible for it. And then he says, Ivri Anochi, I am a Hebrew, I'm an Ivri. Now we know that Abraham uses the same language, Ivri. But what does that word ivri really mean? We know that it means a Hebrew because we say ivri equals ivrit, but not because we know what ivri really means. So the Midrash says something quite interesting. I'm going to quote to you the Midrash because uh, they talk about Abraham and Abraham said he was the ivri. The first ivri is Abraham and he's an ivri because he was on one side of the world and everybody else was on the other side of the world. In other words, he had one view of how how the world was created, that God created the world, and everybody else had a completely different view about how the world was created. The Barbanel says that the word Ivri is actually a Hebrew word coming from the word Avaryan. And what does Avaryan mean? Somebody who transgresses. He said he was transgressing the word of God by not going and doing what he was supposed to be doing. So the word every is actually somebody who is going against the flow of what everybody else does. So the Midrash and the Barbanel come to the same conclusion, essentially. But the but 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 what the Barbanel does, he uses the word and he sees where its root comes from. And from that, he creates an interpretation of what Yona meant when he said, I am an every. Even though I'm a tra- I, I transgress, he says, I still fear God. Are we clear so far? Are there any questions? 
Any questions? No, are we, oh, here we go. Uh, okay. Um, can 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 you not see this the 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 slide, Rob? Still not. I sorry, I can see it, but it's like it's very very small. Most of the screen. Sorry, I, 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 you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to actually I'm going to I'm going to make it full size. Just hold on a second. Okay. Okay. Right. Is that a bit better? Great, thank you. Right. The second thing that the Barbanel is that he he takes irrational concepts and he is he disavows them, and um, hopefully we'll 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 look at some of them. So he says miracles are minimized where possible, and the Barbanel essentially is saying over here that there are where possible. We're not going to go for the greatest possible miracle to exist. Instead, what is going to happen is that we're going to provide a rational explanation of a miracle where possible. And I'm going to give you an example. We see in the book of Shemot, we talk about the 10 plagues and about how there was blood. And then after the blood came the frogs. Then after the frogs came the lice. Then after the lice came the animals. Then after the animals came the boils, etc., etc., etc. Now, the Barbanel doesn't see each of these 10 miracles as being 10 occurrences which were unrelated to one another. Rather, he said that there was one miracle, one absolutely revealed miracle, where the water turned to blood. Then after that, because the blood, the water of the Nile turned to blood, that forced the animals, the frogs, the alligators in the Nile River to come out of the Nile River. Then as a result of that, because the frogs then died, because they were unconnected to the water, that created all sorts of disease. That disease spread and became lice. The lice went and continued to kill the animals. The animals started to stench. And that creates a situation whereby the wild animals came and you've got nearly many, many, many of the plagues. If you want to go and look into the Barbanel, perhaps we can do this at a later stage. We will see how he minimizes a, uh, a, a minimizes a miracle where possible because he wants to take a rational view of the world. He believes that the Torah is not hocus-pocus. It's not all about nisim viniflawot, although nisim viniflawot are vital, and I'm not, I'm not taking them away. But where possible, he's going to minimize those miracles. Another example is we're going to talk about in a bit, if we have time, is about the snake and about how the snake goes and tempts Eve into eating the fruit of, uh, of, of good and evil. Then the second point is something which connects him to the Moreh Nebuchim. Now, the Moreh Nebuchim was written by the Rambam, uh, Maimonides, and in it he provides a, an explanation of many elements of the philosophy. And first of all, the Rambam there, the Maimonides there, uses a lot of Aristotelian ideas. And not only does he use Aristotelian ideas, but he has a very, very clear view about angels and the Rambam there says that any time that the Torah talks about a person appearing or an angel I beg your pardon appearing to a human being that perforce cannot be a conscious experience 
It cannot be that a person meets together with an angel because an angel is a spiritual being and it is impossible for a person who's a human being who's flesh and blood to see something which is completely spiritual. Now, this idea of the Moran Bukhim is something which is very hotly contested in the book of Genesis, because there are many visitations of angels to people. For example, the three angels who appear to Abraham, or, for example, the fight which Jacob has with the angel, which we'll talk about at a later stage. But all of those, both of those examples, and there are other examples, for example, Manoach, who's the father of Shimshon, and his wife seeing that angel, you're going to tell them that they're going to have the super strong son who can't cut his hair. All of those were perceived by the Rambam, by the Moranavuchim, as being a dream or a vision that those people had, rather than something actually going on. Now, the Nachmanides, the Ramban, often quotes these, these, these perspectives, and he disagrees with them vehemently, completely disagrees with them. He believes that angel, angels can take physical shape, and therefore it is possible for an angel to appear like a human being. The Barbanel doesn't agree with this, and the Rambam, the, the Morinabuchim, who the Barbanel sees as his teacher, even though they were about 300 or 400 years apart in, in, in age, he will quote the Mora Nebuchim more often than not, and he will give an explanation for the Mora Nebuchim because he wants to provide a rational concept and the idea of a human being speaking or having any interaction with an angel is something which the Moranavuchim would simply not agree with. Are we all okay up to uh, up to here? Is everyone okay? Any questions? No, we're all good. Okay. Next point. His analysis again is difficulties in in, understand, in basic understanding of the pshat and repeated words which allowed for understanding of motivation of characters and or commandments. So what the Barbanel tries to do is he tries to find a flow for what is going on. And through that flow, we can create a beautiful understanding of what the Pshat gives us. And often it will give us a different kind of lesson or perspective than the perspective which is provided by the Drashic interpretation. The Drashic interpretation, as I mentioned previously, is primarily focused on, you know, the, the, the moment in time where the rabbi in the sermon says, and therefore this is what we can learn. You know that moment in time when you're sitting in a sermon and the rabbi says to you, you know, the rabbi gives his whole drash and says, from this the shalom, we should be kinder to people, we should be more empathetic, or we should do this, or we should do that, or this is how we should act. And, you know, that homiletic lesson, that take home. I think that Barbanel is less interested in the take-home than he is in the actual description of what's going on. That doesn't mean to say that the Barbanel doesn't have take-homes, and we're going to show some very beautiful take-homes in a bit. 
but his focus on is more on the analysis of what is actually going on. And that will provide us with very, very different homiletic lessons than we would take if we were just looking at the Midrash or the Talmud in order to provide us with a with an interpretation of the Torah. I'm going to mention this last point, and it's a bit of a shaky point, so just please bear with me in this one. And I'm going to stop the share so I can kind of like see you all when I say this. And that is as follows. The Abarbanel is not explaining the Torah in terms of a Mesorah. And I'm going to explain what I mean by that. So when when Rashi brings down a commentary and Rashi says, you know, this is the interpretation of, of, of I'll give you an example, right? Rashi says that when Jacob said to, said, said, said to the messenger, he wanted to tell the messenger, he said, Im Lavan Garti, that I dwelt with, with, with Yaakov. Sorry, with, with, with Lavan. In Lavan Garti, I lived with Lavan and I've been hanging around for a long period of time until now. So Rashi will say, Im Lavan Garti, Rashi will say, Vatariag mitzvot chamarti. And I kept the 613 mitzvot because Tariag and Garti, they are an acronym. They can be swapped around in various ways in order to provide uh, an, uh, an explanation of what is going on. Rashi will then say that that is based on the Midrash. The Abarbanel will go and bring down a Midrash and he'll say, this is what all the Midrashim say. But here is my opinion in terms of understanding the Pshat. Here is where I begin. That they have begun. I've told you what everybody else says. And I'm going to tell you what I have to say. And that's on the one hand, very brilliant. And on the other hand, it's slightly dangerous. It's brilliant because what it does is, is that it says essentially that if you have the correct outlook, you can come along and take the Torah and you can interpret it for yourself. This doesn't have to be something which belongs to the Midrash or it belongs to the Talmud or it belongs to Rashi or it belongs to the Ramban. This can be something which belongs to you. You can interpret it like the Barbanel interpreted. You too can interpret it. You can take that pshat and you can own it. It can be your Torah. Just like it is my Torah with the Barbanel's Torah, it is your Torah. That's very exciting. But what is being missed out by the Barbanel is that link of tradition, which goes up link by link by link by link, all the way back to the idea of Torah Shabal Peh. And that, that everything essentially was given by Moses at Sinai. So what the Barbanel is doing is, 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 is on the one hand, very exciting. And it is very new age, essentially. You need to understand that, the, uh, that again, the Barbanel, when he lived, was in, uh, you know, in the area of 1453, the beginning of the Renaissance. He was a Renaissance man. He knew about psychology. It's clear that he was a very psychologically astute human being. He knew about medicine, or at least the medicine of his time. You know, he knew about all the temperaments. Now, some people are phlegmatic and other people are a bit depressive and other people, you know, th those kind of the knowledge of his time he was up to date with. He was up to date with Christian theology. And he often quotes 
what Christians believed about certain interpretations. So, for example, what he will do is he will say, you know, that one an example which I, I just uh, on the spot is when Shlomo, when Solomon builds the temple, he builds the temple in ways which are different to the way in which it's described in the Mishkan. So how is possible? For, how is this possible to do it? He he goes and he brings down various interpretation, and then he brings down the Chochmei Anotrim. He'll bring down the Christian view, and he'll say, you know, something. This works with some of the stuff which some of our later sages have said. I challenge you to find many other people who quote Christian theologians as part of their as part of the exegesis, their interpretation of of the Torah. So he is a Renaissance man. He knows everything, and he wants everyone to feel this ability to be able to explore just like he's exploring he's inviting you to explore and he's inviting me to explore and that is a very wonderful and special thing what should be said as a caveat is that although he is very very free thinking in the way that he explores the torah he does have very very firm philosophical outlooks on the view of Torah, that Torah is minashamayim, that it comes from heaven. He believes very, very strongly that the words are eternal and that his kind of, his hashkafa, his outlook is very, very straight. And therefore, when he looks at it, he looks at it in terms of that outlook. So, you know, while he could do it, you know, maybe somebody else will take the Torah and they'll find truths which which might not exist in reality. You know, and there are, and, and and there there are issues with that. If one thinks, I'm just going slightly offline, but there is a there there is this chapter fifty three in Isaiah about the suffering servant, about the servant of who, who is suffering and is all depressed and is in chains, and and that person will eventually be the Messiah. And this is one of the main proofs of 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 of, of the Christians in the idea of Jesus being described. Before, uh, before he was even thought of or, or, or born four or five hundred years before he was even born. Um, so one needs to be very careful. But nonetheless, I find the Vibranel incredibly exciting. Um, so I'm going to do a bit of shameless uh, advertising. I've got a blog called Your Portion in Torah or one word dot blog. Your portion in Torah.blog, and in it I write essays on the Barbanel and I show how the Barbanel gets his interpretation based on the Pshat. You don't have to have a strong uh, Hebrew knowledge. I'm doing it all in English, um, although it could probably also be done in Hebrew, I am sure. Okay, so that is my essential background, which I think is important for us knowing before we begin looking at what uh what the barbanel does say so if you're ready to 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 to, uh, to take an, a bit of an adventure with me we are going to now look at an example of rashi and try and taking rashi and playing him against um against uh, against the barbanel so I, I hope you, you're going to enjoy this as much as I did, because I think it provides a fascinating reading. Okay, so let's just go through the first three 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 verses. Uh, I just want to see if anything else. Thank you. Thank you very much. Thank you, Shmuel Gershon. Okay, right. And thank you, Ohad. 
So the Pasuk says as follows, Vayeshev Yaakov, that Yaakov dwelt Be'eretz Megurei Aviv Be'eretz Canaan, in the land where his father lived, in the land of Canaan. Ele Todot Yaakov, these are the generations of Yaakov, Yosef. Ben Shvas Reishana, this is last week's parsha. Yosef was 17 years old. Hayaro Etechav Batson, he was shepherding his brothers with sheep. Difficult thing to understand what that means. Vuhu Naar, and he was a young man with Bnei Bilha and Bnei Zilpan Shaviv. Yosef that Yosef brought all the bad news of their father to their uh, uh, to, of their brothers to to their father. V'Yisrael have Yosef mikol banav. Yisrael loved Yosef from all of his children. Ki zekunim hulo because he was a son of his old age to him. And he made for him a coat of many colors. So that's what the 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 psukim tell us. Now there are various challenges of this of of these psukim. First of all, this whole first verse. I'm actually going to see whether I can I can do that. Um, that whole first first verse is challenging. We know from previous verses where Yaakov was living before the story of Joseph, his son. We know that he was living in Canaan. Furthermore, why does the Torah tell us that he lived in the same place that his father lived, where his father lived? Because we know that Isaac also lived in the land of Canaan. The Torah could have just said, that he lived in the land of Canaan. So that's my first point. The second point, or the second difficulty with his, this Pasuk, is the fact that the Torah says that he was 17 years old, and then the Torah says, Na'ar. he was a young man. Well, if he's 17 years old, it's clear that he's a young man. Why tell us that he's a young man if we know that he's a young man? What does it mean to say that he was a, he, he shepherded his brothers with the sheep? We'll get to that. Yeah. And then the Torah says, Vayave Yosef and Yosef brought their bad news to their father. What did he say? What was so terrible? Then the Torah says, the Yisrael Ahavit Yosef Mikol Banav, Yisrael, not Yaakov, but Yisrael, the higher level of, of Jacob. He loved Yosef from all of his sons. Because he was a son of his old age to him. And he made for him a coat of many colors. So I'm bothered, and I, I, I'm sure I'm sure anyone who's reading this would would would, would find this grammatically difficult. You could have just said that Yisrael loved Yosef from all of his sons. Full stop. What is this law doing? What is this to him? Who else would he be talking about? And he made from a coat of many colors. Another issue that I've got with this is the follow-up between this verse over here and that verse there. If Yosef was a nasty piece of work and he brought all the bad news of his father to of his brothers to his father, why would his father love him so much? I mean, can you imagine if you've got if you've got if you've got two if you've got let's say three children, let's say uh, you know, your nuclear family, two children, and the one child comes to you and constantly tells you about how naughty the other child is, that doesn't make you love that child more. I promise you, as a father, I do not love my child more because they tell on their other uh, on, on on their sibling. I don't. I don't do that. So why would he love Yosef because of of, of telling him all of these things? So these are the these are the challenges of the, of, of the psukim, and I'm going to explain to you using Rashi over here. 
and I'm going to then look at the Barbanel. And we'll say, you know, uh, I'd love to hear what your comments are on the Rashi and how it makes Yosef looks look. So the Torah says that Yaakov, that Yaakov lived in the land of the of where his father lived. So I'm quoting Rashi outside. I didn't bring this Rashi down. I apologize. I apologize for that. Rashi says that Yaakov wanted to live in peace and quiet after all the trouble he'd been through with his brother, after his daughter Dina's uh, rape and kidnapping, after his troubles with Laban and his two wives and concubines, all he wanted to do was sit down and have a good stiff uh, stiff whiskey on ice and just relax. That's what he wanted to do. And then as a result of that, God said to him, listen, you can't do that because life is not for sitting back and having a good whiskey. I'm going to give you problems and the problem is going to take the form of Yosef. Then the Torah says, Hunar, he was a young man. And you pointed out, why do we need to say he was a young man if the Torah tells us he was 17 years old? If he's 17 years old, we know he's a young man. So Rashi says, What does it mean that he was a young man? He acted like a teenager. He metaken basaro, he put he put cream into his hair, he would put rouge onto his eyes that he would look beautiful. So that's what it means. So he was 17 years old. He worked with his brothers and the sheep. And what was he? He was, an, he was a narcissist. He, he just wanted to look pretty. He was a beautiful man. Clearly, the Torah tells us that he's beautiful. According to some commentaries, he's so beautiful that when he was in Egypt and the women were peeling oranges, they would watch him and they weren't would notice what they were doing and they would cut their hands instead of cutting the oranges. That's how beautiful it says. But not Tzada Aleishur, that the daughters used to watch him while he used to walk along the wall. And then the Torah says that he brought their bad news, says Rashi, all the bad stuff that he saw about his brothers, he would tell to his brothers. That he used to eat eat food from an animal which was still alive. And they called the daughters, the sons, I beg your pardon, of the shvachot, of the maids, Bilan Zilpa servants, Vachashudim al Harayot, and they were, and he suspected them on having illicit relationships with the girls from Canaan. And we see over here these three things he was punished. Yeah. So we see over here that, I mean, so let, let's just stop here. And I actually, I, I'd like to. Um, I'd like to ask you to unmute, please. If you know, because I really want to get your, your your impressions over here. What do you think of this guy? I mean, just from the basic interpretation of Rashi, before anybody else, how would you describe Yosef? Would you describe him as an ideal son? Would you describe him as a son who's got negative qualities or positive qualities? What sort of person would you say Yosef is on the basis of Rashi's interpretation? What would you say? How would you describe him? I'm fascinated. Because these are the lessons that we learn when, you know, when kids go to school, these are these are the Rashi's that they learn. 
this is the, these are the things that they learn. So I'm, I'm really interested to hear what you have to say. So please, please feel feel free to to to, to say something. Or if you don't want to say something, you are more than welcome not to say anything. And I'll give you my interpretation. Very negative. Very negative. I think it's an incredibly negative view of of Yosef. And then that, and, and, and as a result of that, I think that makes the next verse very even more difficult. Because Rashi says over here, he loved him because he was a Ben Zikunim, says Rashi. All right. That he was a uh, he was a clever son. Everything which shame and aver he learned from shame and aver. When, when according to the Midrash, Yaakov learned this from shame and and aver before he went to sit in the land of Aram with with Laban, then he handed all that knowledge on to Yosef. Now, I find that innate, this Rashi over here, innately contradictory to what we learned previously. If Yosef, let's understand this, if Yosef is, as is described by Rashi, almost narcissistic and quite negative and a, a tizzletale, essentially, a, why then would he go and hand over all the wisdom of shame and aver to such a son? Why not find another son who was surely better than this to go and hand over his knowledge? It doesn't really, the pshat doesn't flow. And it's difficult to understand the simple reading of these verses if you just look at Rashi. It's very, very difficult for me to understand these. Now, I'll, I'll be honest with you, and I'll tell you that the, the the Maharal and others explain Rashi to say that he didn't say that the children ate, that his brothers ate food from an animal while it was still alive, but rather that they wanted to eat the, the, the blood, the meat of, of an animal while the animal, just after the animal had, had been killed. And that they were not having illicit relationships with, the, with, with, with young women from Canaan, but rather they were talking to them in their discourse where they were trying to buy sheep or sell sheep or doing whatever they were doing. So he says that Yosef suspected them of all of these things, but that they didn't really do all of these things. It could be. And I'm not disagreeing with the Maharal. But nonetheless, even if you say this is what he thought that they were doing and that he was trying to be slightly, he wasn't quite as blatant as, as, as Rashi points out, it's still difficult to understand what Rashi is trying to get at. I'd like to compare that to the Barbanel now. The Barbanel learns something completely different. We pointed out previously over here that Yaakov lives in the land of Mugure Aviv. Now that those words Mugure Aviv means the land where his father dwelt from Gur from uh, to be a ger to be a stranger. Now there's what to be said about that, but the Barbanel understands Mugure coming from a different word. Right? So he says over here, So he says rather the language of of Mugure come from a language of fear. For example, Lo taguru mipne ish. This is what um, Yisro says 
to Moshe. He says, you should, you should tell your, your judges not to be frightened of any man. Anyone who's, 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 uh, who, who I'm frightened will come to me. Or for, uh, this is a lovely one. This is what David says, that uh, God saves me from anything which I'm, uh, which I'm fearful of. He brings lots of examples. Uh, don't go and fight with them. This is referring to Altisgarubam. This is referring to uh, uh, to, to the people of Moab, that, that uh, you're not allowed to fight with the people of Moab. And he gives, so therefore he says, he says as follows. Okay. And therefore he, he, he gives a completely different interpretation. Rotselamar, what does it mean that he lived in the land of his father's fear? Pachad Yitzchakaviv, Ben Yaakov, Esav, Vikatatam. Because he's referring to the fear and the anxiety which Yitzchak, his father, experienced having two children who were constantly fighting. And in these examples, Yaakov is comparable to the fear that Yitzchak experienced. Just like Yitzchak in his in his old age had to deal with the the, the hatred between Esav and Yaakov, can Yaakov savo katatot Mr. Motbanav? So to Yaakov experienced that same hatred between the children. Ukemoshi Yitzchak, and here's a really important point. Just as Yitzchak hayasibat katatot banav, because just as Yitzchak was the reason for the fighting and the the infighting of his sons, because he loved Asa more than he loved Yaakov. So to Yaakov was the reason for his sons fighting the Masha Ahavet Yosef, because he loved Yosef. The problem was not Yosef's problem, says the Barbanel. The problem was Yaakov's problem. And just like Yitzchak suffered the, the, the separation between himself and, and, and Yaakov for 20 years, the house of Lavan, um, so too Yaakov uh, suffered from the separation of Yosef from him for 22 years. So the Barbanel is saying something absolutely fascinating. And this is a massive psychological idea because we're looking at generational trauma. The trauma which Yaakov experienced through the way in which his father Yitzchak treated him as opposed to his brother Esav created a situation in which Yaakov was in living in that same land. He was living in the land of his father. Vayeshev Yaakov, Yaakov learned, lived in the same psychological fear of his father because of the dynamics which he himself created. He created those dynamics, just like his father created those same dynamics. And Yaakov does this because he hopes that if he sees Yosef and he treats Yosef as a wonderful son, then everybody else is going to try to be like Yosef. But that's not what happens. Everybody doesn't try to be like Yosef. They hate Yosef and they want to kill him as a result. Yaakov wants to be like Esau, and that's a whole different story. And therefore he thought that his brothers would be jealous and that the jealousy would 
push them to try and be more like Joseph. That's not what happened at all. That's not what happened at all. So we see over here a very, very beautiful interpretation. So we see over here the setting. The setting is one of strife and difficulty from the first line. And then it says he was 17 years old. And then it says that Hayaro Batson. What does that mean? That he went and he shepherded his brothers with the sheep. I'm not going to go into the Barbadell because we don't have uh, sufficient time to go through all of this because I still want to do one more thing. But the Barbanel says that he, what he did was he was in charge of his elder brothers. They were shepherds and he was their head shepherd. He was their manager. And then the Torah says, even though he was their manager and he was a manager to the elder brothers, he still had the capacity to be a na'ar to b'nei bilhavet, b'nei zilpa, n'sha'aviv. Aviv. He still had the capacity to go and behave in a brotherly fashion and help in a helpful way to his younger brothers. So we see a leader in the making from that second verse. We don't see any of the negativity which Rashi brings in based on the Midrash. What we're seeing is we're seeing a flexible young man who's got leadership capacity, he's got the capacity to deal with each person according to who they are. To the elder ones, he manages them. To the younger ones, he gives them love and affection. He brings their bad news to their fathers. This is, this is not the bad news which he heard, but this is rather the stuff that he heard from the cities because his father was an old man, was unable to go into the city. So what he would do is he would hear what people said about his brothers and he brought it back to his father. Admittedly, it's not a good thing, but he did it so that his father would be able to rebuke his sons and help to build them up. Now comes the crunch. Why then did Yisrael Ahavet Yosef Mikulbanav? Why did Yisrael love Yosef from all of his children? He then Zakunim because he was son of his old age. Who law? We see that Yaakov, that Yosef again is flexible in his ability and his approach to different people. To his father, he is the trusted advisor. He's a Venzakunim to him, to his father, to his younger brothers. He acts in a different way. To his elder brothers, he acts in yet a different way. And this is what Yisrael sees in Yosef. He sees this flexibility. He sees the natural leadership ability of this, of, of this man, of this young man of 17 years old. And he goes and he gives him this coat showing that he has the capacity for leadership. It's not still not a thousand percent great because Yaakov should not have done what he did. And we've explained that Yaakov has got a lot of trauma, which he's dealing with and he's trying to play it through, but he plays it through his children, which is the wrong thing to do. But nonetheless, we see how beautifully the verses flow one into the other, into the other learning through the Barbanel and how Rashi creates a very disjointed view of 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 uh, of 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 Yosef and who he was and his father loving him, but him not being such a nice character. It's what what we see from the Barbanels. We see a completely different view of who Yosef was. We see what good leadership looks like, and we see sometimes the power and the sadness of intergenerational trauma and how what happened to Yitzchak affected his son 
Yaakov and how Yaakov is affecting Yosef and all the brothers as a result of the trauma that he himself experienced as at, at a younger age. Okay, are we are, are we all okay with that? Are there any comments before we carry on? Anybody who wants to say anything? I just got a question around um like Drush and um Shah. Yes. Because if some of the things he's saying does feel, even though it's not from the Medros necessarily, it feels like drush, like he's using a word that's used in other places and he's bringing the meaning in here. And is that, I'm just a bit confused about the distinction between shut and drush there. Okay. So, so that, so, so what, what a darshan will do is a darshan will go and say things which aren't written inside the Torah at all. So I'll give you an example, which we're going to come to in a bit is, for example, do you know the story about Abraham that was thrown, he was thrown into the fiery furnace, Rob? Yeah. Do you think it's in the, is it, is it inside the Torah? No. It's not inside the Torah, but we treat it as if it's inside the Torah. Well, our children treat it as if it's inside the Torah. It's not inside the Torah. Yeah. That is a, a something which we say happened to Abraham, although we don't know that it happened to Abraham. Yeah. It's not written in the Torah. When we use a word, any word which is, written in the Torah, we translate because we assume we know the translation. For example, Mugure, the land in which his father lived. But the truth is that the word Mugure can also have a different meaning. Now, he's used Mugure to understand, not not in its typical form as in Ger, but in its its, its concept of somebody of, of, of fear. That is not that 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 is not using external later commentaries to explain what he's doing. He's using his own initiative to find a source where that word is translated in a way which works for him and works for his interpretation, providing a very, very beautiful opening into understanding the Torah as a result. Does that make sense, Rob? Yeah, I think so. You're saying his source is the Torah, it's not like whatever you would yeah. call it, stories or um, not, yeah. So, 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 so it's not going to be an agarita. It's not going to be a story in the Talmud. It's not going to be a a um, a, a story in in um, you know it, it it won't be a a a comment which which a rabbi says and he'll say this is what it means. He'll say this is a word which is used in the Torah. I don't really know what that word means. And the verse is making very little sense, telling me something which is absolutely obvious to me. So it must be telling me something else. What else is it telling me? Okay, where else is the word tag, uh, 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 what you call it, mugure used? Oh, Lord Taguru ish. So he has like this, like kind of like this bulb, light bulb moment, and he says, "Hold on a second, there is something to be said over here." And that's how, and 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 he works from there. He works from syntax rather than from what other people have other people have written. But thank you for the question, Rob. Okay, does that make sense? Yeah. Okay. Any other questions, comments? Lovely. Okay. Um, we've got one more example. Um, uh, I've got I've got I've got quite a few examples, but I wanted to I, I want to tell this outside to you because I think it's quite beautiful. And I, I, I wanted to share this with you. So we know that 
Yaakov in 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 two parishes ago he fights with an angel, and in the words of yeah you know that he fights with the angel and the angel is overcome, and the Torah tells us um, that Yaakov's leg became dislocated when he fought with him. To bless him, and uh, and uh, and we know the story that he calls him now Yisrael. Yeah, he says, "Because he fought, you fought with with God, with an angel, and with people, and you were you were able." Now, as I mentioned before, the Kabbalistic interpretation or the interpretation brought by the Ramban. Nachmanides is that this was an actual interaction between jo- Jacob and the angel. So I don't know if you had a like you know the stories of the Bible when you were a kid and you had these pictures of like this man struggling with this kind of fiery shape. I seem to remember that from when I was a kid. Um, but nonetheless, that is the picture that uh, that, that we get. The Mora Nebuchim, as I mentioned, the Rambam says that all of this, and in fact everything that Yaakov did from sending out messengers and uh, the response that he received and how he divides his place up into two tents, all of that, all of that is all a vision or a dream which Jacob is having. None of it, according to the Barbanel, the way he understands the Mora Nebuchim, is actually part of a reality. The end of Parshas Vayetze says that he meets a Malachai Elohim, that is the Klaalis, the general, he meets angels of God, and he calls the place Machanaim in his dream, and the whole continuation until he wakes up the next morning and faces his brother, all of that is a dream. There's one massive problem which the Mora Nebuchim has the, in, in, in relationship to that, and that is this Pasuk. The Pasuk says, that um and, and, and maybe you can we, we can work we, 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 we can work this out right that he couldn't defeat him and the angel went and dislocated his thigh and the next day we see he was leaning on his leg so the Ramban, Nachmanides, says, hold on a second. If this was all a dream which Jacob was having, how on earth is it possible for him to have a dislocated thigh and being hurt on his, on his thigh as a result of a dream that he had? It's not possible. If all of it was a dream, then it's not possible for Jacob to have a dislocated hip in reality. What on earth is going on here, says the Ramban. Therefore, he says, the Mora Nebuchim, Harav HaMora, as he describes him, must be wrong. Must be incorrect. There must be something wrong. And therefore, and therefore, there is a, there is a problem. So the Barbanel comes to the fence of the Rambam. And he says over here, I'm not going to read all of this. Um, so he says, yeah, 
ואני כבר כתבתי עבורי רצון, כי אותו ספק אין לי ציר ממה שיקשה, לפי שכבר נראה התפעל כלי הנפש מהדמיונים, שהם יגעו כלי הנפש לענה, מה? הלא תראה שהחלום החולם ששוכב ומשלמי את החלום יראה קרי, כאילו הוא עושה אותו פועל בהקיץ. A person can have a dream. says the Barbanel, which is so real to them in their minds that they can move and they can act as if something has happened in reality. I'm not sure if any of you have had that experience where you're sleeping and you're thinking you're kicking a football, but you're not kicking a football and your leg moves. You can move it. So that's what the Barbanel says. The Barbanel says, I'm not happy with this. And in fact, the Barbanel himself later on is not a thousand percent happy with this. But nonetheless, what he does is he does defend the Moranabuchim. Now, what is difficult with the Moranabuchim is this line of that he was limping on his, on, 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 on his leg. Now, there's a very beautiful puzzle. There's a verse which is, which, which, which is brought down from Micha. which the Barbanel brings down. He says, mm-hmm. On that day, he brings it from Micha Dalet. Uh, on that day, he says, God, I will gather the lame. The same word over here, as same word, I will gather the lame. and those who have who, who are lost and I will gather them and those who I've been bad to I will gather them all and I will make the tzolea again yes I will make them the remainder of the Jewish people now what I find beautiful about this pasuk is that and in fact the Barbanel the commentary over here he says over here Why does he call the Tzolea? Why does he call it the Tzolea? V'ulai shekara Tzolea l'fi sheyakov haya Tzolea yorecho. He says maybe the reason why he calls uh, these people Tzolea, that they are lame because of Yaakov, because Yaakov himself was limping after his, in, after his fight with, 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 with uh, the angel of Esav. Now the, even Ezra says over here, well actually the Mitzvah's David, which is even nicer, V'sav ha-Tzolea, So he says, I'll go and gather from the nations of the world, the Jewish people. He's not able to move away from its place. Somebody who's unable to move, who finds it difficult to move, such a person is considered to be a tzolea. So with this, maybe, Just maybe we can provide a metaphorical understanding of what ha- what's happening to Yaakov. Yaakov, after facing the angel and after fighting against the angel and understanding all of what that means about what it means to fight against the angel of Esau, is so traumatized by what he's seen. And in fact, the, the, the Barbanel says this outside. I don't have time to, to, to look at more of this. That what he does is that he can't believe that he's being called Yisrael. He's still Tzolah. He's still stuck in being Yaakov. And he hasn't moved on to being called Yisrael at a later stage. I know that time's actually very, very short because I'm, I'm reaching the end of my, of my period of time. But essentially what we can see from the Barbanel is that, that the Barbanel finds ways to provide very novel and 
different interpretations of the Torah, very, very different from anything that I certainly have heard before. And I've been around the block uh, in terms of understanding and hearing Mephorshim and their interpretations. He brings a whole new vista, a whole new palette of understandings and of interpretations, which provide such beauty and such great psychological depth into my life. And hopefully I've uh, encouraged and motivated you to look into the Barbanel and see what he says. And uh, God willing, you should learn it as well. And certainly you can, you are more than, more than free to look at my, my blog, your portion of blog and have a look at what it says there. I generally do one every single week. Um, both uh, in, uh, a translation of the Barbanel on, on the, on a, an Ali in the Torah, as well as a, 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 a small essay or summary. So I really do hope that you enjoyed that. Does anyone have any questions? Mm-hmm. Any questions? Questions they can unmute, raise their hands, write in the chat yeah. box. I'll go uh, with one, which is um, in the beginning of the class, you opened up with um, with Paradis of Shah's Ramaz Drash. So where, when, where does that concept first emerge? Do we have it as a constant, you know? Yeah, so so the Gemara talks about Arba Nichnusula Pardes, that there's a Gemara in Chagiga, where it talks about four people who entered into the orchard. Pardes is an acronym for Pshat Remesh Drash and Sod, which means that they went into the depths of the Torah, understanding all of its complexities, and they had various results of understanding Torah. Rabbi Akiva that Rabbi Kiva entered into this and he left in peace. There were others who weren't so lucky. One went man, but other went man and one became an apostate. But the idea of the pardes is meaning that the, the, the Torah is like, uh, is like an orchard in that you can, everything, there's, there's something for everybody there. There's something for everybody. That's where the idea of the pardes comes from. And that's where we get this idea of Pshat Remesh Drashen Sword. Thank you for that question. Anybody else? And one other point, which is, uh, you, you speak about how the Barbanel sort of uh, goes off the trail a little bit uh, from the Misra, and he has this free thinking, um, sort of says, okay, now it's my turn to 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 build my own. Yeah. Isn't that, isn't that what the Chachamim did as well, though? Or do we say that all Midrash came from Sinai? Okay, so... So I think you're opening a bit of a can of worms there, Ohad. Uh, it's, it's a lovely question. Um, there are some things which are definitely from Sinai, and there are some things which are a response to the troubles that people had in their time. Yeah, and I completely agree with you that that is what the rabbis did a lot of the time. For example, when we talk about Asav and the Midrash talks about Asav and what a disgusting and despicable person Asav is, that despicable description of Asav is not found in the Torah. It's only used in the Midrash because it's describing the enemies which the Jewish people had at the time. And often it was like a metaphor or a polemic against Rome and the Roman time. So yes, they were Dorish and they were constantly Dorish. And I agree with you that that the Barbanel is actually following those lines. He is following those lines. And in a lot of ways, he's not being, you know, very different to them. The only way in which he is being different to them is in relationship to the vast number of other commentaries which use Midrash almost exclusively as their basis 
from which they deal with any questions which are provided for them. Yeah, or how they deal with with the issues. So if you look at it, I'm just to give you an example, Rashi, the Ramban, the Kliyakar, the Orachaim, yeah, the Rosh, um, the Chiskuni, the Rabbeinu Bachye. Literally, all the staples that you'll find on a Mikraot Gedolot, except for one, the Ibn Ezra, which is very based on the Rash Bam, as I mentioned, all of them are based upon are based upon midrash. So, um, so just to give you an idea of how heavily Masorah oriented our commentaries are, which gives us a certain view. But what I'm suggesting is that there is this beautiful other view which is available for anybody who really wants to have a look. Thank you. Okay. And anybody else? Any more for any more? As they say. Just a quick question in yes. terms of the um. The unique commentaries that don't rely on the Sora and yeah. Drash, were they seen in any way as controversial? Was it just like, oh, well, it's doing something different? Because the way you said it could be dangerous. Like, so obviously some of the reactions we saw, um, you know, to some, some, uh, some of the Chachamim in the past was more extreme. So was this ever considered threatening by the larger public? That's interesting because, um, I heard in the name of my, my brother-in-law told me that Rav Hutner said that, you know, we don't follow the view of the Moreh Nebuchim anymore. We only follow the Ramban. Yeah. We only follow the view of the, the Kabbalistic view rather than the rationalistic view of Torah anymore. He says, we don't, we don't kind of look at it. That's what he said. Now I'm not saying that I agree with it or I disagree with it. Um, I think that, I, I think that I haven't yet seen people who, who who throw the abarbanel out at all in fact there are there are people that the, a person who does take massive notes of the abarbanel is somebody who created a commentary very much like his much later on and he was called the malbim Ramer levush and he was the is the rabbi in budapest and he uh quotes the abarbanel he calls them mahari mareno harav uh, Yitzchak Barbanel, and he quotes him, uh, and they and he is quoted, but he's not quoted widely at all. So there are some commentaries who do quote him, and they agree or they disagree with him. But he is seen as a mainstream commentator. Nobody has come along and said that his books are kind of are, are, are forbidden and that they shouldn't be read at all. He is considered to be kind of still part of the you know, the, the great contribution of our rabbis of, of, of past times to, to towards what we have. So he is definitely within the framework of what we would call, you know, uh, you know our, our main commentators. But he is fascinating. And I do encourage you to, 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 to look at his works and uh, to read through them and to enjoy them as I have. And certainly if you, if you find it difficult to have a look at my blog, see the commentaries that I provide and, uh, I'm only too happy to chat about this more with anybody who wants to be interested is interested in, in, in getting hold of me, um, and to send me a, send me a message through through my blog, and I will come back to you soon. Okay, anybody else? I think we'll close it for tonight. Thank you so much, Rav. It was a beautiful presentation. It was very nice Thank to you. have you. We will have you. Okay. Thank okay. you so much for being here. Good night. Uh, Excellent.